and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to tell you about some ways that you might be able to help me out and help out the podcast as well. First, we'll start with the podcast. If you enjoyed today's conversation, it would mean a lot to us if you shared it. Share it on social media, share it with a friend, send a text, an email, whatever you can do to to share these conversations. It really does help us expand our reach. Next, iTunes reviews are really a big deal, and a lot of people have found us by reading reviews on iTunes. So once again, if you enjoy the podcast, take a few minutes and go over and write us a review on iTunes. And the last thing I want to promote is my new book. It's called Shift Your Mind, Nine Mental Shifts to Help You Thrive in Preparation and Performance. This podcast is called Intentional Performers for a reason. I'm really fortunate that I get to spend so much time around elite performers in a variety of fields and industries. And the book is an amalgamation, a culmination of all of those conversations over the years and all the science and research and and stories from podcasts like you're going to hear from today. So if you enjoy the book or if you've already read the book, we also would appreciate a review on Amazon. It once again helps us expand our reach and gets the book into people's hands that may have otherwise not have been able to find it. So once again, thanks for sharing on social. Thanks for sharing with each other. And to be honest, we're just grateful that you would give us your time, your energy, your ears, your attention uh, to listen to these conversations. So uh, really excited for today's guest. So Dan Helfrich is somebody that I got connected to on social media. Pretty amazing world we live in today. And I saw Dan posting about his experience as a collegiate soccer player, which he's certainly going to talk about in this conversation, and talked about huddling and teamwork and leadership. And so he's pretty active on LinkedIn, and I highly recommend following him over there. And I reached out to him and said, hey, I think you're exactly up my alley, and you're the type of person I chat with on the Intentional Performers podcast. So Dan Helfrich is the chairman and chief executive officer of Deloitte Consulting. As CEO, he leads a $10 billion, that's billion with a B, billion dollar business comprised of more than 50,000 professionals who help clients solve their most complex business issues and shape their futures with confidence. Prior to this role, Dan led the government and public services and advised government leaders in transforming into their most efficient and effective organizations across areas of technology modernization and innovation, human capital, strategy, and analytics customer experience, and enterprise operations. In addition to that, Dan serves as the play-by-play for Georgetown Men's Soccer, which is where he went to college and played soccer at. So Dan's going to talk about leadership in this conversation, why he takes time to pursue something he's passionate, uh, such as doing play-by-play for a college soccer team, and what he believes are the tenets of leadership and, and good human development. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Dan Helfrich. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I first found out about you on LinkedIn and I saw some of the videos you were posting. I was like, man, this guy's talking about sports huddles and soccer and leadership. And he's working at Deloitte, which I, living in the Washington DC area, you just run into people that work in Deloitte kind of everywhere. 
Uh, and then I hit up one of my friends and said, hey, what do you think of Dan? He's like, she, she goes, he'll be perfect for what you're all about, Brian. So I'm excited to get to know you today. And uh, at an, in another time, in another world, we would be doing this in person, but we'll take what we can get during a pandemic. And uh, just excited to chat with you. And um, one of the things I was intrigued by, uh, Megan sent over uh, that you are one of seven uh, the oldest of seven kids. So I'd love to get a sense of who you are, how you came to be you, uh, what it was like to grow up in a household of, as the oldest of seven and, and how that might have influenced who you are today. So just start there and, and let's, let it, let's let it ride. Love it, Brian. It's great to be with you. Um, I love what you're doing. I love listening to, to the podcast. So yeah, oldest of seven. Uh, we moved around a ton as a family. So I think you, you learn about adaptability and you learn about um, sort of uh, learn lessons that later in your professional life about how you adjust to new situations. Um, and you learn that having a tight knit group of people you love who are honest with you um, and, and hold you accountable is important. And for me, that was the family. Um, you also learn about uh, in our family about diversity and about change. Uh, it wasn't always uh, seven kids. It was four kids um, that started. And then my parents, who are two amazing people, um, adopted three uh, children. And we went from four to seven. And I will tell you, I don't remember the time sort of uh, psychologically when it was four of us. It always feels like uh, seven of us. But certainly building those relationships with um, my siblings is a, you know, a huge part of who I am. How old were you when the three other kids came into your life? Teenager. And were they all three at the same time or were they? No, um, slight, slightly different times over the course of probably three or four years. And so look, I got two kids. I think you said you have four, uh, like adding uh, four. I, you'll have to tell me what four is like on another time, maybe over coffee or drink or something, but bringing in three others, what was their reasoning for bringing in three kids when you already have, you know, a big family as is? You have a big loving home and an open heart and the ability to bring more people into that. And um, it is addition by addition um, in every way, shape or form. And that's, that's the way it played out. And what were their ages? And give me the age dynamic, because you said, I think you were a teenager and there were already four of you and then there's three others. I'm just trying to get a sense of what that house was looking like. It was looking like an amazingly organized uh, house um, with the, you know, with the chaos. So you, you ended up with an age range of a dozen years or so. So there, there was probably a time when you had, you know, five or six teenagers at once. So Plenty going on for sure. And mom and dad, as far as work goes, I think uh, your dad worked in human resources. Tell me a bit about work and what you witnessed uh, sort of outside the household as far as profession and how that may have influenced you in some capacity. Yeah, my, my father uh, was in HR for his entire career, worked for a, a bunch of different companies, including um, uh, a couple decades with General Electric, which is an you know, awesome place to grow at that time, you know, well-rounded HR professionals. And so I definitely got to observe a, uh, first of all, someone grow from sort of uh, a quote unquote line worker to someone navigating middle management to eventually someone growing into an executive career and watch um, navigate that. But I saw someone who led with integrity um, and led with directness in the way he dealt with people and someone who valued diversity before valuing diversity was something that uh, you always said was important. And that was a, you know, a huge thing. And then my mom was an educator. She was a Montessori teacher. And uh, so that blend was super powerful. And, you know, the term servant leadership um, is attractive to me for a variety of reasons. I, I, I think about it and I certainly think my roots in servant leadership were partially or largely from witnessing um, two parents who not only had that mentality in their professional lives, 
but we're clearly serving the community and serving their broader family in the way they selflessly conducted their life. Did you go to Montessori school? I did. I did not, but people that go to Montessori school swear by that experience shaping them. Do you have any thoughts on how that influenced you or, or how that might have impacted you? And I don't know if your other siblings also went through it, but I, I just I curious about that. no idea how. No it idea. <laughs> I did multiplication before most kids my age. But um, I'm actually a product of a whole bunch of t- types of education. So I had some Montessori action early. I had some uh, parochial school. I had some public school, private school. So I'm a, I'm a mutt as it relates to which parts of the U.S. education system I touched. And having witnessed kids that are adopted, nature and nurture, how do you think about nature and how do you think about nurture just as it relates to what you were able to observe and witness from, uh, from a household standpoint? Uh, interesting. I, uh, it depends on the topic, right? You get into a lot of leadership discussions and you talk about nature and nurture. And I, I think there is a lot of nature in leadership, but I, I believe grow from and learn from the context of our surroundings. And uh, I certainly observe, just as I do today, that when you take a situation, it could be a situation at work, it could be a situation in your personal life, and you inject um, different energy, different personalities into that situation, then growth occurs at an accelerated rate. And uh, you referenced you know, some videos that I've published, and I, I love this concept of little equations that help people think about, in our world, the culture we're trying to create. And one of the ones I love, I always say horseshoes are greater than circles. And if you visualize a horseshoe, it has an opening versus a circle is closed. And the reason that's important is, in my mind, in a, both professional and personal lives, people stop growing if they're in a circle. New ideas and new people don't come in and the best ideas and best people can't go out to go do do great things elsewhere. And I bet part of my um, passion about the importance of the horseshoe is because my family has always been a horseshoe and that's been super cool. But what were you like as a teenager? Because I know what I was like as a teenager and I had two brothers and we were fighting all the time. And if you introduced a couple other kids into that, like, I, I don't know, it would not have looked pretty. Was there any part of you then that was not as inclusive? And was there any part of you that maybe has changed as you look back on that time? Or do you think you've, you sort of looked at it then the same way that you look at it now? Uh, more the latter. I looked at it then the way I look at it now. To answer your first question, what was I like as a teenager? What most people that knew me um, or people in my family would have said I was a you know, 30-year-old in a 15-year-old's body. Were sports a big deal for you? Huge. Um, uh, you know, played tons of sports growing up. Um, ended up being soccer-centric, but you know, probably tried and played um, just about everything, but ended up, you know, being very competitive as a soccer player, Um, you know, played all through university at Georgetown and certainly learned 90% of my lessons about leading uh, through that team-oriented sports environment. What about sports was a draw for you? Mm. Uh, I, I probably the combination of um, competition and uh, sort of physical activity and socialization. Nothing, nothing probably different than than most people, but it, it also was something that I got a great deal of um, satisfaction from the process, from growing and getting better and having success and then being knocked down and, um, you know, getting cut from teams as you get better and all those processes I found interesting 
and um, compelling and um, never wanted to stop. You mentioned that people that knew you when you were 15 would say he's, he's a 30-year-old in a 15-year-old body. What were some benefits to that and what were some downsides or drawbacks to that? I probably wasn't as fun as a bunch of my 15-year-old uh, contemporaries. So uh, that may have been a bit of a, a, a drawback in certain ways. Uh, you know, advantages, I probably was more comfortable interacting with quote unquote adults in a substantive way than the average person my age. And so you end up developing relationships, you get insights, you get exposed to things that, you know, maybe you wouldn't if you didn't have that mentality. Did you have a vision for where you wanted to go with your life at 15 or were you still just being a kid back then? Uh, part of it, um, the, I want to get married and have a family young and you know, that part of it. Absolutely. Professionally. No, geographically. No. Um, I, I, I probably thought that sports would be some element of, of my, you know, professional life, but I, I, to this day have never been a goal setter or a, here's my vision for, you know, my career. And I, I wasn't then either. And playing college soccer, when did that come into the forefront and why did you decide to go to Georgetown and, and tell me about the experience when you, when you did get there? Uh, college soccer was an obvious thing that was going to happen, you know, early in my teenage years, just based on the trajectory I was on soccer wise and my love of the sport. Uh, Georgetown offered two things that were incredibly important to me. Um, the first was um, an academic program with rigor that had an international component as I felt like my global uh, experience and mindset was limited. And so I, that's why I applied to and, and, and went to the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown. And the second was a soccer program that was on the rise that wasn't you know, established as one of the top 10 programs in the country, but is something I felt like I could have a role in um, helping to create. Why did the global thing matter to you? I mean, that's a pretty heady thing for a 17, 18 year old kid to say. Um, I don't know. I, I was, I loved the French language. I had, you know, I, I had studied French and hadn't traveled much outside the U S and I, I saw, you know, the world getting smaller to use an expression that was probably used back then in the, you know, nineties. And so globalization was a thing I thought was interesting. And then I definitely, like the idea of the uh, student body and my teammates being uh, more global and uh, from the standpoint of exposing myself to different, you know, to different types of people, different environments, different cultures, et cetera. And what was it like playing at Georgetown? How was the experience for you? Um, net extremely positive with plenty of uh, ups and downs along the way, but my best friends in life all came from that experience. I draw on that experience all the time. And I draw on, you know, I reference ups and downs. Like there were times when I was glued to the bench. There were times when um, I felt like I could contribute a lot more than I was. There were, you know, so going through those circumstances and figuring out how to be a good teammate without being the best player, without being, you know, the leader on the field, those situations help you a ton if you really embrace the concept of, you know, servant leadership. Because I think being able to lead both as a superstar and as um, a player on the bench offers an incredible uh, uh, amount of opportunity to grow personally. And that it definitely provided that was not playing and being on the bench. Was that the first taste of adversity you felt in your life? Or was there a time earlier in your life where you felt like you really uh, got a taste of adversity? Uh, I mean, there, there are clearly 
you know, small incremental moments of adversity, you know, throughout life. Uh, and, and I wouldn't put going through periods in college of not playing at the extreme end of adversity on the scale that, you know, people experience. So in some ways it was, it was probably the first taste of athletic adversity. And that was a good, you know, that was a good experience to go through. And what did you learn about leadership? You said, you know, you learn how to lead on the field, but you also learn how to lead from the bench. I'm more curious about the bench because when I work with sports teams, players will often say, I just feel like I can't make an impact on the bench. So I'm curious, like, what did you learn? How did you make an impact when you weren't on the field? Well, you, every person on the team is a work in progress. And if you are tuned in to building relationships with every one of your teammates, then you can discover um, things that they're struggling with, things that they love, things that they hope to achieve, ambitions they have, fears they have. And then you can help them navigate those things. And so I really learned the importance of personal leadership and in finding different ways to motivate um, people who are at different points in their life. And I apply those lessons um, for sure today. Now, you know, at the points in my career where I was playing a lot more and a starter and all those things, then certainly the platform you have to demonstrate uh, to others, you know, what's important to have your voice carry more weight in certain rooms, no doubt um, that happened, but um, being able to, to learn the personal side of relationship building and uh, almost leadership coaching as someone playing less was super important. The other thing, Brian, that you learn, and this has been important to me as someone who'd be classified in, in, in large parts of my career as, quote, a young leader is feeling comfortable challenging people older than you in college is, you know, is an important lesson. And so you're the sophomore on the team challenging the way the seniors are thinking about something, challenging the way the seniors are approaching something. I think I picked up a lot of things that I've applied as someone who was younger in age than most of my contemporaries in my professional career. What allowed you to challenge them? Um, I, I've, I, as my wife, Christy says, um, I've never been a worrier. I, I, I've always been confident actually that doing the right thing, as long as you do it in a respectful way and challenge people in a respectful way, and you do it once you have the foundation of a relationship already, which is why what I was saying before is so important, then uh, you feel comfortable that you're doing the right thing. And I had that confidence then, and I have that confidence now. You mentioned the relationship, but what else allows you to have the confidence? Where, where does your confidence come from? An unanswerable question um, as far as I, I think about it. Again, it's... Um, I've, I've had conviction about what is right. I have confidence that I've gathered information and looked at a situation from myriad angles. And once you've done that, then you have the confidence to, to take the conversation in a new direction, offer an alternative point of view, you know, et cetera. You know, what also, what also helps you is once you do that and the world doesn't collapse, then it gives you more confidence to do it again. I think you hit on it without realizing it, which is, it sounded like you mentioned the word conviction, but it sounded like what was underneath the conviction was curiosity and looking at all these angles and all these possibilities. So spending time with, with that curiosity to get to the point of then having conviction and then knowing that your conviction could be wrong and you could screw up and that's part of the learning experience. So it, it sounded like there was something in there 
that that made sense to me. I struggle with conviction and curiosity and when to be in both of them. And, you know, you look at a state of our world where one day we're told we have to do X and the next day we have to do Y. And it just seems like it's hard to have conviction uh, in a lot of how we go about things. Um, but it's also important to have conviction and stand on things. And so for me, I try to often have curiosity. And then when I feel like it's, I'm at the right place, I step into the conviction. I don't know if you think about curiosity and conviction in that same way. I, I do in many ways. The, the, the thing I tell myself and I tell my team all the time is I am a leader in training. And I may be the CEO of Deloitte Consulting, but I am a leader in training. And that means that I recognize that I have, um, I don't have unlimited experience and I don't have unlimited knowledge and I will make mistakes and I will have conviction at the right moments to be decisive um, as I lead, but I will always be curious to um, learn from situations, to open my mind to other perspectives and um, I will never claim to be some, you know, amazing leader who has it all figured out. I, I think being able to say in a disarming way, I'm a leader in training is a really powerful way to create um, discussions about fallibility and discussions about the growth curves that all of us are on, regardless of the roles we occupy. I love that. I've never really heard that before. And something that I'll take with me because we're all novices and experts and we can hold both of those to be true. So that's really cool. Before we get into your experience in, in the workforce, there, I want to close the loop on, on soccer for a minute and I'm sure we'll weave it into the rest of the conversation as well. But you also do play-by-play -play or commentating for the soccer team now at Georgetown. And I was like, that, that's interesting. So I'm curious about what that seat is like in sitting in that seat, why you sit in that seat, what is it like to do that? Uh, so I'd love to just hear about what that experience is like for you. Yeah, by far my most important job is the play-by-play -play announcer for Georgetown men's soccer. It, well, you've had a good time at it the last couple of years. It's been a good time to have that job. It has been. Uh, we won the national championship last year, which for my entire family, and it is a, um, it's a, it's a loving relationship between the soccer program and my entire family. Uh, winning the national championship last year was a family highlight of the last decade. Um, uh, so what's it, how did it come about? Uh, I said earlier that I, I probably thought my career would have been in sports. If I had picked one career that probably it would have been, would have been sports journalism, journalism, broadcast, or, or print. And uh, my wife might tell you that on one of our first dates, I actually played for her like an old NBA game that I dubbed over and broadcast. And she said she called her friends when she left and said, there is no way this is going anywhere. This guy is super weird. Um, but we, we navigated through that. And, and so when... Uh, I was living in, in D.C. We had moved away for a while, but my wife and I were living in D.C. in the early 2000s. And the accessibility of sort of Internet and streamed broadcasting was becoming um, it was becoming more accessible. I offered to do the play by play. I was you know very early in my career and uh, I loved it. Uh, I still love it. And so I've really only missed, I forget if it's two or three games of broadcasting in 16 years. And, uh, and what that means is a few things. It means that uh, many times in those 16 years, I've said no to something that most people would have found much more important than broadcasting the game. But what I've always done is not made up a false excuse or a made up story about why I was missing that particular meeting. I always said, because I'm broadcasting these games and it's important to me. And I've loved Deloitte and I've loved all my individual you know, mentors through the years because the fact that it was important to me 
and that I had the conviction that it was important to me made it important to them. And I've never felt like I was compromising something in my Deloitte career to continue, um, to continue broadcasting. I'll just close, Brian, by saying, look, the reason I love it is because I get to be a storyteller of something that is taking place live and to figure out how to be articulate and paint the picture with no script, no rehearsal, to figure out when to let the, the viewer learn from my voice versus learn just by watching and, and you know, listening to the sounds in the stadium. That art form is beautiful to me. And by the way, I think it helps me professionally because look, living in the moment, being articulate in a interactive back and forth is an incredibly important skill. And I actually think it's mutually reinforcing with being a good play-by-play person. Man. So <laughs> I've had on all kinds of people on this podcast, like really inspiring people. But a lot of times their inspiration, I, I just can't see myself doing. I can't imagine running Ironmans and climbing crazy mountains. Like a guy climbed Mount Everest. I'm not doing that. Like guy that went to the moon. I'm not going to the moon. Like those things are just not happening. When I was 15, video games were, sports video games were becoming very popular. And so we would play NHL or sports talk baseball or NBA 2K, all these sports. And I would always do the play-by-play. And I would annoy the hell out of my friends. He shoots, he scores! And they, you know, I had run around and all this stuff. And I went to Syracuse University in part because I thought that that's what I wanted to do for a living. And I'll give you even one more piece to this, which is my cousin is Steve Buckantz, who sure. um, Washingtonians know because he was the voice of the Washington Bullets slash Wizards forever. And for some strange reason, is no longer the voice, but we're not going to get into that here. So uh, I had somebody who I knew that was doing this work so I could touch it. I could see it. I could feel it. And then I thought I wanted to do it. And then I got to Syracuse. Um, I had friends that were in the school there, which is best known for new house, yep. new house is best known for TV sports, sports broadcasting. And I was talking to them about it. I just decided not to do it. I got interested in some other stuff, but as I'm hearing you talk, there is nothing stopping me from doing play by play for a high school team or, or I, I love basketball. Like I would love to do play by play for a basketball team. And I think what's so cool about what you said is I have so many clients that are executives that want to coach football or coach high school basketball. They just want to be in that sports has played a big role in their life. They just want to coach and they don't do it and they yeah. don't do it because they say they don't have time to do it. And what's so cool about what you just said is you prioritized it, made time for it. And then as a result of that, there was understanding from the people around you because you were serious about it. It wasn't some like thing you were doing just, for the sake of doing it, you were passionate about it and cared about it. And to me, that is super inspiring because a lot of us go through our life not stepping into that stuff because we don't believe that we can when all we have to do is commit to it and ask for permission and then follow through and take it seriously. And to me, man, that, that's just simply inspiring. Well, and Brian, what I would be telling the executives you're coaching if they presented that to me was, the platform they have as executives to demonstrate to the people that are watching them that they can and should have hobbies and pursue them and draw boundaries and follow passions, the multiplier effect is massive. And so, you know, one of the great privileges of being in a role like this as the captain of my Deloitte team is, I can share things like this and maybe 5,000 of the 50,000 people on my team have more confidence to pursue their version of sports broadcasting because they see me having done it. That's the, in my mind, that's the privilege of being an executive in a large organization. And if you want to change culture, then realizing you have that ability 
um, it becomes super, um, for me, energizing. The amazing thing is the, a lot of people I work with are small business CEOs. And I look at them and I say, you can do whatever you want. You know, you started this company. And, and to your point, there was an old school concept of not having hobbies and being the first one in the last one out. And there was actually a recent study, I'll send it to you, about a soccer team in Europe where they studied the pro players. And if they had interests outside of soccer, they actually performed better than those without interests outside of soccer. So even in the sports world where for years they'd say, oh, it's a distraction. You shouldn't be doing this. You should only be focused on that. You talk to athletes, they're like, I can't train for more than a certain amount of hours a day. Um, so I love that because I think to your point, it's, it's culture setting. And for so long, like I've even had people on my podcast, elite sports coaches who, you know, I don't play golf because I don't have time. Like I don't do hobbies. I, I've had a lot of podcast guests who say, I don't do hobbies, but I think what's cool about what you do is it's even more than a hobby. Like I, I, I would, it's, it's a job. You have, you just have another job. Just like parenting is a job. It, it's not a hobby. Um, so That's right. I, I think if you took it as a hobby, it would be different. If you didn't have the same commitment to it, if you didn't take it with the same, um, if it didn't matter as much to you, then yeah, you're just like going to games, but you're actually taking it professionally and you're taking it seriously. Yeah. And, and it's a good way of putting it in, in that way. It's not in the discretionary column for me, like hobbies might be for other people. It's, it's in the fundamental non-negotiable for me, which then, you know, treats it with a whole, uh, you know, a whole nother level for sure. Have you had any other employees that you've interacted with over the years where they've done cool stuff like that, that you've acknowledged and recognized and, um, I would imagine there's a sense of fulfillment in just leading by example in that way and seeing it, especially in an organization like Deloitte where people are working long hours, they are maybe traveling that, you know, it's a, there, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, is there, is there anyone that comes to mind? You don't have to say the person, but any, any other inspiring? Cause for me, this landed tremendously because I could literally see myself doing sports broadcasting going forward and getting so much fulfillment out of it. I'm curious if there's another example that might've been sparked by um, you putting that out there. I don't know that I, I don't know that I take that much, you know, I, I don't know that I take that much credit for it. We, we have um, people who've, uh, you know, opened up their own food trucks and, you know, as part of a fam, you know, as part of a family business, we have a number of people who've leaned into opening up um, nonprofits and spending a bunch of time on those, which would, you know, people would point to this kind of thing. So in, in, in many ways, it's birthed um, uh, entrepreneurial-like passions and given people an outlet to pursue those while being, you know, full-time employees of a, a great firm. I'm, I'm just hung up on it because so often people are narrow in what their dream is. And they say, well, I have to love what I do every day and be in sports, for example. I'm like, well, why do you have to be in sports? Tell me more. Like, well, I love it. Oh, get in line. Like, it's easy to love. It's fun. It's exciting. It's interesting. But you could still work in sports and still do other stuff. And you're the perfect example. So anyway, I think it's super cool. Uh, I want to move on a little bit and get into your, your professional career after Georgetown. So give us like the bullet point cliff note version of your, your career. Uh, I think you've spent quite a lot of time at Deloitte. Uh, so give us, give us what's transpired for you from, from a professional standpoint. All right. The one minute version, uh, graduated in three years from Georgetown, had a year of eligibility of soccer left was obviously wanted to play that year. So I kind of talked myself into grad school um, so I was a 20 or 21 year old wearing shin guards to class in grad school, um, which taught me a lot about, again, being the youngest and, you know, navigated uh, through grad school, happenstance interview with Deloitte uh, that wasn't a formal interview, had a friend there, met a couple partners in the office. They made an offer to me. 
would never happen today that way. It was so circumstantial and informal. Uh, accepted the offer, like many thought consulting would be an interesting thing to try for a couple of years. Um, put the broadcasting ambition on hold. Um, took my fiance to Cleveland, Ohio to start with Deloitte. Loved what I was doing for a couple of years. Uh, was helping with public sector. That really was my passion is using a consulting career to help uh, public sector organizations, states, local governments, federal government um, improve. Uh, Deloitte didn't have a federal government practice at the time, probably three years into my Deloitte career, had the opportunity to help start that business, had the great fortune to have a couple partners say, hey, Dan, will you come launch this with us? My wife and I then moved back to DC to launch that practice. 9-11 um, happens, and there's a very fundamental moment for obviously so many of us. For me professionally, it was because we got a chance to help the government um, stand up the Transportation Security Administration, the Department of Homeland Security. That became a huge part of my life and then helped um, Deloitte establish a broad business in D.C. serving the federal government. I then spent most of the 15 years after that in various roles supporting federal government clients and leading our business there, um, eventually led our overall government business for three or four years. And then after doing that, became the CEO um, in the spring of 2019. So that was two minutes of 22 years. How important is loyalty to you? It would be the number one adjective that my wife or my mother would use to describe me. My mom talks about how I would wear the same red jacket to school every day for several years because I was loyal to that red jacket. And even in my life today, I am very attached to certain parts of my life. I'm very attached to, obviously, Georgetown. I'm very attached to Deloitte. I love the idea of um, growing with institutions, of feeling like you're on a team and then that team transcends time. And I suppose that translates into me being um, intensely loyal. Benefits and drawbacks? Uh, benefits are that you see the uh, short and long-term implications of decisions you make and relationships you build. And so you get to see a full arc of those things as opposed to only partial arcs. I don't feel any drawbacks. Now, I would have people who would say, hey, Dan, you could have done 15 other things with your, with your life, or it would have been great for you to have experience X or Y. I'm just, I'm, I'm not someone who thinks about those things. I'm not a person that dwells, uh, worries, or has regrets. And so um, I don't really see that, I don't really see the downside of, of, of loyalty. How common is it at your organization for someone to be at Deloitte for, for that long? Very common, though increasingly less common as, you know, every five to 10 years plays itself out. And you obviously sit in a position where you talk about culture and you talk about the ability to work maybe on the business less than in the business as you might've been on your way up where you were doing a lot of consulting work. What, how much of the time are you spending working on strategy and pe like people on the business compared to actually, you know, executing and working in the business? Uh, 90% on strategy and culture and people. Um, and frankly, you know, some of the things that operationally you need to do to run a, you know, a, a business of our scale successfully and profitably. 
still practicing the craft of consulting with you know a subset of of clients but one of the things that's super important in an organization like ours and super important to me is that we reward uh, celebrate and recognize leadership in many shapes and forms and not those who happen to occupy management roles with big titles at a given point in time and you know very few people get into the profession of consulting for example um, because they want to be a CEO or have X title, they get into it for the craft of consulting and to help clients. And that's what I want 94% of our leaders to do. And it's super critical that I back that up and we back that up with a culture that doesn't disproportionately put people that hold the management roles on a pedestal at expense of the people who in your words are in the business. Because if we do that, then we're, uh, then we're saying that the craft of management is more important than the craft of actually consulting with real clients every day. And that is not a culture I want us to have. I know that you talk about these everyday equations that you use. You talked about the horseshoe in the circle. What are some things that you would want to just broadcast to the world? Obviously, people are listening to this podcast because they want to know how they can better themselves as performers and, and be intentional about that. Are there any equations that you guys have created or that you leverage with your team that you find to be pretty profound? Well, so first of all, the concept of these everyday equations is important because we're trying to create a bridge from uh, what a lot of organizations might call a vision or um, a statement of culture that they aspire to and actually what people do every day to live up to that. So that's why we call them everyday equations because I found for so long that those visions or cultural statements are unapproachable for the quote unquote average person working quote unquote in the field every day. And so you come up with these equations that you say, and we have about 15 or 60 of them that say, if you actually want to judge yourself or judge your team on whether you're living up to that culture, then use this as a way to check yourself. So some of the ones that have had a big impact on our organization, 15 minutes of content is greater than 30 minutes of clutter. What we're signaling there is people and organizations waste a ton of time. And, you know, you hear, Brian, I hear all the time, I'm so busy, there's not enough time in the day, et cetera. Well, if you do a time audit of how many things you're doing that are super valuable, the reality is I think I can give most professionals back multiple hours in a day if they challenge the status quo of whether what they're doing is valuable. And so on one of my, you know, project teams, it's happening six levels removed from me. Someone would come to me and say, we, we looked at the equations and we said, we have this 60 minute status meeting every week and we've had it for the last five years. And we talked about it and there's a, minutes of value in that meeting. You know, by the way, we do a lot of prep for it and we don't use the prep. And that caused them to challenge the status quo and change the way they approach. And guess what? From my standpoint, it's beautiful because we just gave those 10 people 45 minutes back in their week. They can use that for whatever they want. They can use it to do other Deloitte stuff. They can do it to learn. They can do it to take a yoga class, they can do it to feel more comfortable being home for dinner. And that's, you know, one example. Another example I'll give you that's been super important. Um, And by the way, it's always been important. There's more of a, a magnifying glass on it now is deliberate um, diversity, equity, and inclusion is greater than it will happen naturally, diversity, equity, inclusion. Where, where does that come about? Because we've heard some people say through the years, things like, well, I'm a good person, 
and I have good values and I see everyone the same way and therefore I naturally create an inclusive environment. And that's not good enough. It, to create the environment that maximizes diversity, that creates true equity and true inclusion, it has to be a front of mind thing where you are intentionally understanding where inequity exists, intentionally understanding where diversity is not optimal and doing things to change it. And so again, small equation, but creates a discussion that's pretty powerful about whether I as a leader or we as a project team are living up to the culture that we're trying to create. That's the spirit of the equations. Love it. You were mentioning time earlier and I had a client this morning who has an eight person team and she's talking about not having time to have a meeting with one of her people. And so we talked about if you're going to be a leader and you're going to manage, you got to carve out time for people. I think you have 8,000 people that are technically under your umbrella. Maybe I have that, that number wrong, but it's a lot of people. And uh, About so, 55,000 right now. 55,000. I'm not even, 8,000 8, would have been a lot cleaner from 8 to 8,000, but 55,000 people. Okay, Dan, how do you make time and connect with those people? Um, how do you make sure that they know who you are? I mean, you're in this big organization. Um, how do how do they feel valued? How do they know that you care about them? Um, you treat people with the respect that they should hear information in a plain spoken, transparent way from you, and not from some corporate version of you. So you know, how do you actually apply that? I send all my own emails. I write all my own emails. I send them from my personal email address as opposed to from some disguised Dan Helfrich address. I respond personally to every single email I get from anyone on my team and I invite that, I invite that feedback. Now, some people think I am crazy to do what I just said, but the reason I do it is twofold. The first is I get tons of energy from hearing from people I don't know who are experiencing things about our firm from an angle I'm not in because it makes me better. And so I get energy um, from it. The second, the second reason is because um, what I'm hoping is that others, again, see that role modeling and say, you know what, am I as approachable Am I as plain spoken as I could be? And if not, then maybe those leaders do a few things differently and then eventually we build a culture where hierarchy is less important and the best ideas win the day, regardless of where they come from. All right. So you broadcast, you've got four kids, you have 55,000 people, you're responding to emails, sleep? Is, is, does, is sleep something that you value? Is it something that you spend a lot of time on? Um, the science of sleep is, is getting more and more attention. I'm just curious. Yeah. Uh, in all candor, it is not something I spend a lot of time on. It is, um, I'm not a great sleeper. Um, I have been that way since I was eight years old. It is not a... Um, it's not something I'm never tired. Uh, and, and so it's, it's something that, you know, physiologically has been with me, um, forever. What I don't do is fill my waking hours with Deloitte work. So I'm, you know, exercising my, my family says that I read the internet every morning <laughs> because, you know, I have time. And so I am not in any way, shape or form what I would consider a workaholic because I have other interests and spend my time in a bunch of ways. Um, and so I don't feel like, gosh, this style of leadership I've chosen is adding hours to my workday and work week. It doesn't feel that way to me. 
you mentioned earlier being a leader in training. What are some things that you feel like you still have room to grow on? Um, obviously, you're in a, a position where people are looking up to you uh, for leadership. What are some areas, if you were to say, gosh, this is something that I still need to get better at, where, where, where does that live for you? The number one thing is I am a fast processor of information. And at times, I can uh, process fast, reach conclusions, and do so prior to the rest of the team coming along the journey. And I need to make sure that I'm checking myself on that. Awesome. The last question for me, it's, it might not be because we might spiral into another question. I often say it's the last question and then something else pops up. Uh, I asked somebody who worked at Deloitte for a number of years and she wanted to ask what was in your smoothie this morning. Um, so I guess you're a big smoothie drinker. I am. My kids would say that I could, I'm ready for being an octogenarian because liquid soup and smoothies, I could go seven days a week. You got some years. Don't, don't rush it. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> I did have a smoothie today and it was blueberries, peanut butter, almond milk, and whey protein. Awesome. I don't think I've ever asked anyone smoothies, although I have had on a guest who swears by fruit all the time. So, well, I'll, I'll but the key, the, the, the unique thing about my smoothie habit is that I despise bananas and most um, smoothies have banana as a base. So I've discovered through trial and error and through consulting with juice owners that blueberry is actually, blueberry and cauliflower are the two best substitutes for bananas in terms of um, sort of water content to get the thickness right. So there's something no one has ever or will share with you on your podcast. Exercise and health important to you? Every day uh, for the... I guess since I was probably five years old, um, it's, it's a fundamental part of who I am and, uh, I don't miss a thing. I'm typically a morning exerciser because I feel like I have more control, um, of things early in the morning, but, uh, it's, it's a huge part of who I am. It's a huge part of who we are as a, as a family discipline. And, and it sounds like when you put your mind to something, you follow through, whether it's uh, doing the broadcasting at work, at home, uh, eating. Uh, it sounds like discipline's a, a pretty big, big value as well. We talked about loyalty earlier, but discipline's also a piece of this puzzle for you. Uh, I think that's, pro I think that's probably, probably right. Organization, not a part of the puzzle. So some people equate discipline with being quote unquote organized. You would not look at my desktop or file system, look at my physical desk, look at my closet and believe you were dealing with a disciplined person. So this was a bunch of fun. I want to give you a megaphone to plug anything. It could be Georgetown Soccer, Deloitte, a nonprofit, uh, anything that you're passionate about. Uh, just give you some space to, to blast it out to the world and, uh, and then we'll finish up. Uh, I, I, I won't use it for a specific cause. I'll use it to simply say that um, I think the importance of leaders in the majority, um, in, in my case as a white male, to educate yourself, to lean into the topics that are critical to the future of this country, to be vulnerable and seek to learn about cultures and experiences that you don't have is perhaps the most important generational thing that can happen. And in this moment where there are many people in the majority who occupy roles like mine and have the platform that comes with those, um, the change that we can help instigate is profound if we actually have it as a high priority. That's awesome. It's beautiful. I'll also recommend if you're on LinkedIn to follow Dan, he posts some awesome content. If you're interested in leadership culture, uh, that's certainly how I found you. So I recommend that they check you out there. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson. You can find me on LinkedIn at Brian Levinson uh, and find out everything that we're up to at strongskills.co. 
Uh, Dan, thanks for giving me some time and appreciate you sharing. I know you got a lot going on and uh, looking forward to at some point grabbing lunch, coffee, uh, a smoothie, whatever it might be, uh, and getting to meet you in person since we are across a river, which if you're not from the DC, Maryland, Virginia area, I am comfortable with as a Marylander going to Virginia. Before we started recording days, like, yeah, we're like five or six miles away. But when you live in this area, Maryland and Virginia, there's just a thing. And um, it's hard to explain if you're not from here. But thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate learning from you. And, and thanks for being so open and sharing everything you've learned along your journey. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. You treat people with the respect that they should hear information in a plain spoken, transparent way from you and not from some corporate version of you. So, you know, how do you actually apply that? I send all my own emails. I write all my own emails. I send them from my personal email address as opposed to from some disguised Dan Helfrich address. I respond personally to every single email I get from anyone on my team and I invite that I invite that feedback. Now some people think I am crazy to do what I just said. But the reason I do it is twofold. The first is I get tons of energy from hearing from people I don't know who are experiencing things about our firm from an angle I'm not in because it makes me better. And so I get energy um, from it. The second, the second reason is because um, what I'm hoping is that others, again, see that role modeling and say, you know what? Am I as approachable? Am I as plain spoken as I could be? And if not, then maybe those leaders do a few things differently and then eventually we build a culture where hierarchy is less important and the best ideas win the day regardless of where they come from.